Thank you, Steve, for reading that for us. If you would, join me in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Our God, we, uh, we come this morning uh, into this place um, just humbled already that you uh, ha- have promised to meet us here, God, where two or, two or more gather in your name. There you are also, God. We, uh, we, just, uh, we ask for your presence. Uh, we ask for it to be tangible, Lord. I know there's many in this room even now who are experiencing things uh, beyond uh, my own comprehension, God, and uh, uh, we pray a special grace to them that even today as we, as we look at the cross, God, that they might feel your grace this morning. God, for any of us who are uh, in need of uh, just a reminder of what it means to be truly redeemed by the blood of Jesus, God, I pray that today would serve that purpose. That your word would be powerful, God, and that uh, uh, you would be heard above all else. God, we commit this morning to you. We ask that you take it and use it uh, in the way that you most see fit and for the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. If you're in John 19, hold your spot there. Uh, We're going to unpack that uh, this morning. But before we get into that, I just want to tell you um, uh, just a a quick story. Um, As you've noticed, in John 19, we've come to the cross. Uh, We've found our place at the foot of the cross this morning. And uh, it's a tender passage in Scripture. And uh, I recall many preachers in the past preaching on this subject, right? Um, There was one preacher, for example, I I went uh, with my friend, his name's Isaac, Uh, he usually uh, works in the sound booth um, uh, in the back during our lift service, and I went with Isaac uh, because he had this cousin, and they kept talking him up, the whole family talked him up that he was some amazing preacher, and and so I went with them, and he was preaching out of this, uh, uh, it was just a high school gymnasium. And he preached, and he preached this sermon that, this was like 15 years ago, and I still remember just the details. It was filled with details, details of, of the flogging of Jesus, right? Details of the whip and, and how it would pull the skin off of Jesus' back. I remember the details of the nails that were hammered through Jesus' hands, destroying these nerves in his wrists that, that would cause uh, intense pain, I even remember this detail that, uh, that, that as Jesus was on the cross, the pain he experienced was so terrible that they had to make up a word for it, the word excruciating, right? Am I, am I right on that? If you didn't realize this already, Brett, Brett was that pastor who would have known 15 years ago um, that, that we'd have been serving in ministry together, but he preached this sermon that I heard so long ago, and it still stuck with me to this day because it made the cross real. It made the cross real to me, and uh, if you've been around here any length of time, you know we take our our students to student life camp every summer. There was one speaker there at this camp named Jeremy Kingsley, a wonderful speaker, and he spoke on the crucifixion of Jesus. He didn't focus so much on the details as much as just the the conviction. Uh, Somehow by the end of that, our hearts were just boiling inside out of guilt and shame because what he did is he is he he described it and then he looked at us and he said who killed Jesus and then he just yelled at the audience you did you killed Jesus you were the one holding the hammer you were the one striking the whips it was you that killed Jesus try to walking out of that sermon feeling good about yourself right there was another pastor Sam Bott he took a whole different approach um, he was also a speaker at camp just a few years ago, and he spoke on the crucifixion, but he spoke in like very dramatic form. He even kind of acted out the scene with his arms spread wide from the stage, his facial expressions of, of pain and suffering. 
He even had us close our eyes at one point, saying, imagine that you are there at the foot of the cross, and as you are there, Jesus makes eye contact with you and says, I'm doing this for you. Very dramatic, right? All good ways of, of unpacking the crucifixion. They preach passionate gospel messages that, that focus on the cross, and afterwards there's an altar call, some sort of, you know, maybe hundreds of students respond. Why? Because the cross was made real to them. The cross was made real. That's the design of these sermons, right? To make the cross real. They're wonderful sermons, memorable, accurate, convicting. So many people come to know Jesus Christ through these sermons, and yet I still have a skeptical bone in my body so often with these kinds of sermons. Never against the speaker, but towards the receiver and their response. And maybe I'm skeptical because I've taken so many students to these camps and I've seen how it plays out after that message. And the best way I can describe it is this, I'm skeptical when it seems that people only respond to the suffering of the cross rather than the Savior. Does that make sense? For example, today I could show you 15 minutes of the passion of the Christ. We could all come to tears and have a big altar call, and I'm sure the Lord would use that. But if your response is simply based upon the suffering and not the Savior, then I believe that it will reveal itself. And oftentimes it looks like this. It's a merely emotional response. Now, whether you love Jesus or not, you would, would you not respond emotionally to the imagery of torture and suffering of any person? Right? Our hearts go out. We shed tears for those who have just been uh, experienced catastrophe by the, by the natural disasters. This is part of who we are. Wouldn't we, wouldn't we respond to see the image of, of a man being brutalized? Of course. Here's another way it reveals itself. The life change that happens is, is temporary. It doesn't last. The, their, personal passion, uh, their personal passion to live for Christ and to serve Christ and to grow to be more like Christ, it fizzles rapidly because it's rooted in pity for Jesus rather than the redeemed purpose in Jesus. You cannot simply cry your way into redemption. There must be a motion of the will, a submission of your heart and mind and entire being that acknowledges to Jesus that it was your sin that put him there and that it was by his blood and his death on the cross that he offers forgiveness to those who would receive it by faith and who now say with their lives, Jesus is my king. To understand that your depravity no longer has an eternal hold on you. And that even now you can live for a purpose in a king that surpasses anything this world has to offer. It is the willful submission of your whole self to King Jesus who died for you, whose blood atones for your sin. It's not the emotional response to the image of blood and suffering. You understand this now. Today we're in John 19 and I'm much less interested in the second part and more in the first. The willful submission of your whole self to King Jesus. We come to John 19 in this place and he's been put on trial, wrongfully accused, um, flogged, crowned with thorns, handed over to the people to be crucified. And our attempt today is not to avoid the horror of the cross. Absolutely not. We must understand always the details of pain and suffering of the cross. But today our primary focus is the Savior, not just what he endured, 
but what it all meant and the power it has to redeem the soul. So we're going to camp out uh, primarily in verse 30 this morning, but it's going to be helpful for us to just kind of navigate our way through this passage. So let's do that uh, starting in verse 9, uh, sorry, starting in verse 17 of chapter 19, if you would read along with me. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. I kind of like that because Pilate's kind of sticking it to the Jews. Remember, they're the ones that put him in this spot. Right? They're the ones that put him in the spot multiple times. He said that, that he finds no fault, no blame with this man, and yet they were persistent. They wanted Jesus' death, and so he gave it to them, but he says, I'm going to put this up there. Right? I've written what I've written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one place from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. So this is what the soldiers did. Okay. We're going to camp out there for a little bit. And I don't want to, there's a lot of sermons in this passage, uh, of course, in these following verses. In verse 25 through 27, we see this tender moment for Jesus and Mary as Jesus is on the cross and his mother is at his feet watching him in misery and and he says to her he says John is your son and he says to John Mary is now your mother he kind of just kind of relinquishes his sonship to John and John becomes her caretaker it's a tender moment and and it's one that we could speak a lot about but in this verse just before that verse 24 we see this line that we see oftentimes in scripture this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled this happened so scripture might be fulfilled see throughout the gospel of john john has consistently been connecting uh, who jesus truly is and how he is the fulfillment of the law of moses of the prophets the law itself the ten commandments The ceremonies and regulations and festivals and Sabbaths and the Passover, all of it, just just pointing fingers to Jesus Christ. And if you track through John, this is why he did so much on the Sabbath to rub the Pharisees the wrong way, remember? This is why he taught so much right in the middle of the festivals. But not only this, but, but John acknowledges multiple times When things that happened to Jesus or when things that Jesus did, when they happened to fulfill the scriptures. He does it here for us in 24. And in verse 24, when he says, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments, he is actually quoting uh, King David from Psalm 22. Now, if you've read Psalm 22, you know that it is a depressing psalm. It begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how he starts the psalm, and the rest of the psalm doesn't feel much different. David uses this expression of dividing and casting lots of his clothes to describe his personal torment. 
which happens to be a regular aspect of crucifixion in Jesus' day, which was something David had never even seen. And so here in John 19, John uses it to say that all David was going through in Psalm 22, that it was all typological foretelling of what Jesus was to go through. It all pointed to Jesus. And this happens again uh, in verse 31 through 38 at the end of the passage that Steve read for you. If you recall, there's another time where something happens so that the scriptures may be fulfilled. See, Jesus had given up his spirit. He's dead, hanging on the cross. But in order to get the bodies down before the Sabbath, they broke the legs of the two guys next to him so, they would, so that they would die quicker as they were, would be unable to leverage themselves up to draw breath anymore. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So instead of breaking his legs, they stabbed him in the side. This is a terribly important note, by the way. As blood and water flows from his side, without a doubt, Jesus was dead. If anybody says that it was some sort of trick or something or whatever, it's not real because he was actually stabbed in the side. They verified that he was fully dead. And in verse 36, it tells us why they did this. It says, these things happened so that scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one that they have pierced. You remember what the Old Testament law said about the lamb that was to be sacrificed? It was not to have a broken bone. Jesus fulfilled all of these things. He did it. He is the fulfillment of it. Many of you have probably heard um, different statistics on uh, prophecies being fulfilled by Jesus. But it's interesting to explore this and, and somewhat powerful. Right? Think of the, the hundreds of prophecies in Scripture that are foretold about Jesus. Hundreds of prophecies that he fulfilled. Prophecies of, of his birthplace in detail. Prophecies of his bloodline in detail. Of his miracles, of his ministry, of his death, of his resurrection. All foretold. There's one statistic that's fairly popular. You've probably heard of it. Where some scientists got together and they said, For even eight of these prophecies to be fulfilled either by accident or intentionally, by any man, it would be the same as covering the state of Texas with sand dollars two feet deep, coloring one of them red, putting a blind guy in the middle of it, and telling him to bend down and pick up the red one. That's the chances for eight prophecies to be fulfilled, either accidentally or intentionally. And Jesus fulfilled over 300, and he has more to do, by the way. We are still waiting to see him do some wonderful things. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And what we read today is the moment that it has been fulfilled. This place in 36 and 37, by the way, where it talks about the breaking of the bones and the stabbing of the side. This place uh, uh, in scripture, this is actually the last place where John says these words. And this happened so that scripture would be fulfilled. It's the last place. Not because Jesus is done, not because there aren't any more prophecies to fulfill, but because John was making this point through his entire gospel. Jesus' death brings it all to completion. The things that he'll do in the future to fulfill the things spoken about him, they'll, they'll all verify and give witness to this simple line that Jesus shares in his last breath. Read with me verse 28 through 30. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. 
A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And I love that detail in there that he gave up his spirit. Remember, he, he had full control of this the whole time. No one takes my life from me, he said. I give it of my own accord. And so at the time that he knew was right, he gave up his spirit. But before he did that, he took this bitter drink so he can muster these words. It is finished. The law has been fulfilled in my death in this moment. It is finished. It is complete. It is done. All of the law, it's been fulfilled at this moment. The perfect Passover lamb has been sacrificed, atoning for the sins of all who would believe in him. He is the Passover lamb. Think of John chapter 3. As Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness so that those who would look upon it would have life. So Jesus was lifted up on the cross so that anyone who may look upon him in belief would be brought to life. You think of some of even the more obscure books of the Old Testament. Esther, for example, the only book in the, in the scriptures to not even mention the name of God. And yet you can see God working throughout the whole book. And, and in the same way that Esther uh, risked her own life to save her people and to defeat the enemy. So Jesus risked his life to the point of death to save his people and to crush the head of the enemy. He fulfilled it right here. All of it was pointing to him. It's all been fulfilled at this place on the cross. And this is why it's so important for us to understand what the cross means. Jesus does not want simply an emotional response from you. He doesn't want you to feel sorry for him. He wants each of us to know why he did and what it means for us. And this is what it means. <clears throat> Jesus' death on the cross means the work of redemption has been brought to completion and it's yours for the taking by belief. Jesus' death on the cross means the work of redemption has been brought to completion. Can I ask you a personal question this morning? Are you truly redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ? I love the, just the sound of, of these songs that speak so boldly about the blood that we sang this morning. Did you notice they're, they're joyful? Are you redeemed by the blood of Jesus and then take it a step further. What have you been specifically redeemed from? What has this redemption meant for you? How has it proven itself in your life? Is it more than just a title? Well, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8 says this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, <clears throat> in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us, lavished on us. See, you have redemption by the blood of Christ. And this word means that you have been released. The price for your sin has been paid. It's done. It's complete. You don't have to be bound by it any longer. Have you been redeemed? Have you received this payment of blood for your sin? Or are you still bound by it? And if you claim this, I want to ask you another question. What difference has it made to your life outside of checking the Christian box on your personal info page on Facebook? How has this blood-bought redemption for you brought healing and victory out of sin in your life? 
How has his blood-bought redemption for you brought purpose and meaning and mission into your life? How has his blood-bought redemption for you changed the way you think about people and money and time investment and it's changed your worldview? How has his blood-bought redemption for you bought passion and zeal for all of those around you who do not know the lavishing grace of Jesus' redemption bought by the blood on the cross? I want us to consider three things this morning, three understandings of true redemption bought for you by the blood of Jesus. And the first is this. To be redeemed means that you are forgiven. To be redeemed means that you are forgiven. Romans 3, 24 says that all are justified by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. You are, you are justified. Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen to these words from Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's some in this room, I'm guessing, who have been claiming Christ for years and are still unconvinced of this. You might say, Adam, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've been through. And I'm telling you, with the authority of the scriptures this morning, whatever you've done, as bad as you think it is, it does not matter at the foot of the cross. If you bow to him in humility this morning, it says that he will, he will give you favor. He will give you grace. This week, our oldest daughter, who's <clears throat> four, she got in trouble. Uh, and she was not allowed to have sweets or desserts for two days. We're finding out that just removing sweet things from her is, is more effective than, than any form of corporal punishment that you could ever try. And so after that two days was over, she was finally able to have sweets. The third and the fourth day, when the opportunity came to have dessert, when it was offered to her, she would say with a pout, I can't have any. So we'd say, Larissa, no, it, that, that's over. You are, you're now free to have dessert. We had to convince her of it. We had to work on her. She just wasn't getting it. And listen, it's good to have a healthy awareness of your depravity and your need for forgiveness. That's where it begins. But there are many who have received it, and yet it's still terribly hard for them to embrace it and to live in it. They feel they, they don't deserve it, and so they refuse the grace of God. It's kind of self-punishment. They don't fully understand the permanency and, and power of it, and so they easily get retangled in the regrets of the past. Or, like I think was the case with our daughter, she just liked the drama and the pity that came with being the victim, the odd one out. People live that way. Whatever the case is, if you are in this place of finding his forgiveness hard to embrace, please be convinced this morning that his forgiveness is sufficient. He doesn't, he doesn't need your efforts trying to earn anything. He doesn't need your pity. He also doesn't regret saving you. Do you know that? He's not waiting around for you to impress him or to make a mistake so he can, so he can just beat you over the head. See, in the depth of your sin, he was already deeply in love with you to the point of death on the cross. Right? This kind of forgiveness is sufficient for you, whatever it is that you hold on to. Now, I've asked this question multiple times this week to different people. I've had a lot of fun conversations, and it's simply this question. Are your sins tomorrow forgiven today by the blood of Jesus Christ? Are your sins tomorrow forgiven today? It's been 
fun to discuss this, but just in, case I, just in case I wasn't clear with those of you who I've had this conversation with, let me just say, surely, absolutely they are. Absolutely they are. Why? Because of verse 30. Because it is finished. He's paid the price. Your redemption is complete at the cross. And if he is, and if you have believed upon his name with this in view, there's nothing that, you could, sep- that could separate you from that. Now, with that being said, yeah, sure, there's always consequences for sin and disobedience, right? As a child disobeys their parents in our need of correction and discipline, the Bible says that so often we find ourselves experiencing the same consequences. Sin's always going to affect you here and now. You'll, you'll always reap what you sow. This is reality. But I tell you that if your redemption has truly been bought by the blood of Christ... Even if you have unrepented sin upon your head and if you've backslidden in your faith, I firmly believe that he will use the resources of creation to restore you. I've seen it over and over again with people close to me who have run and run and run. But their true redemption has been revealed when God uses crazy things to bring them back to himself. It is finished. You are forgiven. And just like you didn't earn it, you can't earn your way out of it. The Bible said God, uh, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And my guess is there's probably someone here today who needs to finally humble themselves to stop living with the turmoil in your soul and to come back to the cross today. Repent in humility. He's waiting in love and his heart is not to make you pay for your sin but to welcome you out of it. Now, I know there's a question out there that a lot of people have, maybe not in this room, but certainly this world. Now, if this forgiveness is so real, then why wouldn't everyone just want to take advantage of it, right? It doesn't matter what you do. It's going to be forgiven. In the end, we'll end up in heaven either way. So what does it matter? And I want to tell you that the person who says this does not understand what Jesus did on the cross. They might have been impacted by the image of the cross, but they've not been impacted by the Savior. They do not understand what they've been forgiven from what they've been forgiven for, if they've ever truly received it. Jesus said this, he said, those who have been forgiven little, love little, right? The measure of your forgiveness is shown by the rate that it pours out of your life in love for, other, for, for others, not using the Lord's forgiveness for your own personal and selfish gain. So first, to be redeemed means that you have been forgiven. Secondly, to be redeemed means hope. It means hope. Ephesians 4.30 says that the Spirit of God has sealed you for the day of redemption. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his Spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Read these words with me. Excuse me. Romans 8, verses 22 through 27. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. 
Your redemption means that you have the spirit within you sealing you to the day of redemption. What this means is that if you have been redeemed, not only are you redeemed now, given hope now, but that this hope seals you for the day of redemption. See, there's going to be a day where this redemption is fully finished and, and, and a new body will be given to you. And this new body will no longer be bound by sin and shame and disease and pain. And it will be a redeemed body. But as long as we are here in this world, your redemption already plays out still in that you have the Spirit tending to you, interceding for you, so that you can live in accordance with the will of God. You have the hope of eternal redemption. And if you know him, then it's already begun. It's already begun in your life. And I tell you what, this should be enough to get you through any sort of hurt or groaning that this world could cause. Even if you feel unable to muster it or to fake it any longer and you feel you're about to explode under the pressure of this world, his spirit intercedes for you, tends to you, aligns your mind to his will. And there, there is peace every time. To be redeemed means you're forgiven. To be redeemed means you have hope eternal. And lastly, it means this. To be redeemed means freedom. It means freedom. The idea here is life change. The Bible says that in Christ you're a new creation. You've put off your old self and have put on your new self in Christ. But it doesn't just stop there. You don't just claim the new self and just continue to do what you want to do. But being redeemed gives you the privilege to live for him in this way. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 through 14. Look at these words. These are wonderful words. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good love that verse. Those who are truly redeemed take their purity seriously and they've been equipped and enabled by the grace of God to say no to worldly passions that can so quickly distract you from him. Redemption means that we have the wonderful privilege of living for Christ, of becoming more like Christ and more and more having victory over sin and and over guilt and shame. And these things can overtake the wisest of believers as soon as we forget it, right? We have freedom. And yet, for so many of us, myself included, sometimes believers feel like this is less of a privilege and more of a burden. To pursue and take purity in Christ seriously. To live without the turmoil in our souls that comes when we say yes to the world for that fleeting feel-good moment. And then we suffer weeks of heartache following For some reason, we try to satisfy both Jesus in the world and the spirit in the flesh. And the Bible says clearly, we cannot serve both. And if you're like me, you still attempt this. And we need to know something. We cannot do both. To love one is to reject the other. To say yes to one is to say no to the other. And this is the case every time. Every time. 1 Peter 1, 14, 15 says this. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Now in 1 Peter, it uses this word, conform. 
We see this word also in Romans 12 telling us to not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Romans 8 tells us what we should be conformed to, though. Romans 8 says that, that we should be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Do not be conformed to the image of this world, uh, to the patterns of this world, but be conformed to the image of Christ. You cannot conform to both. To conform to one is to rebel against the other every time. We cannot say yes to both, and we cannot say no to both. It does not work that way. His blood-bought redemption for you is not that small. It's not that superficial. Your redemption means that you are supplied, and get this, you are privileged by his grace to say no to this world, to the sins that once bound you, to the heartache and conviction in your core that comes when you satisfy your flesh. Do you know that, by the way, that heartache that comes when you satisfy flesh over Christ? It's terrible. You have the privilege by the grace of Christ to not do that thing with her or him when you're alone. You have the privilege by the grace of Christ to not lose your mind to that drug or that drink. You have the privilege by the grace of Christ not to worship captivating worldly things. You have have the privilege by the grace of Christ to not be vulnerable to your temper. You have the privilege by the grace of Christ to say no and to shut the computer off or to switch to a flip phone or to look the other way in the gym if you can't keep your eyes in their pants. You have the privilege of finding your self-worth in Jesus rather than the mirror or whatever you put your body or whatever you put on your body to seek approval. You have the privilege, the privilege to say no to these things and say yes to Jesus. This is privileged living supplied by the grace of God because he freed you through his blood shed on the cross. This is redemption. And I get it. I'm with you. These are tough words, right? But we need to hear this. We cannot say yes to both. We cannot serve both. We cannot conform to both. We cannot actively say yes to both. And here's a thought. Hasn't his blood been enough for you to say yes to him? Hasn't his blood been enough Not out of compulsion, but out of love that is inspired by the genuine acknowledgement of what has been accomplished for you on the cross. We're going to sing this song in just a minute called Jesus Paid It All. I love these words. Jesus paid it all, all to the I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Of course we owe him this. He, He bought us. To be redeemed by the blood of Christ means you have been forgiven. You have an eternal hope and you are free. And I pray that you make a step in this redemption today in view of the cross. If you're here today and you're covered in guilt this morning, you come with a heavy heart. You've known for a while now that you need to be right with God, but you've been holding on to the guilt for whatever reason. I want to tell you that today is a day that the Lord has made for you to let go of this thing at the foot of the cross. To accept and embrace his forgiveness that comes when you submit your heart and allegiance to him. God, I pray you do that this morning. If you're here and you're bound by what is right in front of you, your hope is whatever you can put your hands on. You've been living for lesser and fleeting things. I pray that you would also find yourself at the foot of the cross this morning, ready to align your purpose to his will for your life, to be purposed in him. Ready to give him your priorities, your schedules, your families, your careers, everything about you. You're ready to just serve him with it. And maybe you're here and it's just simply this. You've been trying to say yes to both. You want what the world has and you want what Jesus has. You've tried every way possible and nothing is working. 
I pray that today you are reminded of the freedom he bought for you on the cross, that it is actually better for you, more rewarding, more fulfilling, more freeing to your soul to finally say no to whatever that thing is that has caught your attention these days. And if you're here today and you've never accepted this wonderful gift provided to you by Jesus on the cross, I pray today you may make Jesus your king at the foot of the cross, that you would know freedom at your core in a way that you've never known it before. And that today would be the first day of your lifelong transformation as you conform more and more to the grace of Jesus Christ, who by his blood bought you the eternal hope of redemption. If you feel like you need to respond to the Savior this morning, to the Savior, I pray you do so. Myself, Pastor Brett, others are here. We're ready to pray with you. We're ready to to talk to you, to, to help you in the scriptures as you make decisions towards the Savior this morning. Let's pray. Gracious God, we we're humbled by your word as always, Lord, but we, we're also convicted. And I pray that if there's anyone here who who in view of the cross, God has been suffering in, in their faith, maybe it's been made real to them that their lives don't match up with the Savior they claim. Father, I pray that you would allow us to make some step today. God, that you would uh, fill us with your grace, fill us with the grace of conviction if need be, fill us with the grace of understanding that this is a, a privilege to serve you, God. Let us choose you today above our guilt, uh, above anything else, above the worldly passions and desires that we so, so often long for that distract us from you. I pray that today would be the day that we say yes to you in the face of all of those things. God, that there would be a clear cut in the way we live this morning as we take a step deeper into you, as we try to confirm, conform more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. God, do this work this morning through the power of your word and your spirit. All to your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.